fantastic. Oh, what a tremendous privilege to do something bigger than yourself, to partner with uh, people that are doing incredible things. I think what Ivan and Jane are doing is probably some of the best stuff that's happening around the world in terms of their multiplication capacity. They're really exciting. And uh, it's great to have you in church. My name is Mike Keating, and I pastor this great church by the grace of God. Yeah, I'll put that. My brother. It's a great church. Great church. So uh, it's our joy to have you with us this morning. And uh, we've been, uh, well, I've been around. We've had a few visitors over the last few weeks. Uh, and so we were, if you like, doing this thing on 1 Corinthians. So we're working through an expository preaching se- uh, series on the book of Corinthians. And uh, the church at Corinth was a fascinating church because it was a church that uh, in many ways was less than perfect. It was a church full of difficulties and problems. It had uh, disunity in the church. It had people getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. It had immorality. It had disorder in the church service. It had questions over marriage and divorce and whether women should wear veils and it was a church that had some problems, which makes me feel better about our church. <laughs> in fact, the church normally, the church at large. And so there's a lot we can learn from this first church. It was a very early church. It was planted by the Apostle Paul. And he's been away for about two years. And a deputation from Chloe's household visited the church with a list of problems. And 1 Corinthians is really his effort via letter to try and address those problems. And so uh, we're just going to flip through the side. So, you know, part one, the biggest issue that Paul wanted to address was first was just church unity. You know, can't we just get along with each other was his first question. You know, let's not have schisms and whatever, uh, an interesting thing. So next slide, thanks. Uh, Then we get to chapter five where we are today. Uh, sex in the city, everybody just got very excited because uh, we used that three-letter word. And uh, Corinth was particularly a city known for its immorality. Uh, so uh, next slide. If you were to go to Corinth, uh, the um, Steve and Michelle Bolt and, uh, was there not recently, uh, not far ago. And we've got some wonderful video that I'm going through. That's the Acrorinth. Up on top of that was a fortress, and uh, that's one of the temples that remained. And the temple for Aphrodite would have been up on top of that mountain. And that was a place that was recorded by Strabo, uh, an ancient Roman historian, that there was 1,000 temple prostitutes there. So a- every time you were walking around, you had one of the biggest brothels known in, the Western, in, the, in that world at that time sitting up there in plain view. And so it was, uh, the whole idea of morals wasn't really a big deal back there. In fact, Demos, another Roman historian, says that, you know, typically, if you could afford it, you would have your wife for the purposes of bearing children. Mainly that was their job. Give me children, honey. Then you would have concubines for your romantic instru- uh, um, interest. And if you wanted boys or girls, it wouldn't matter. So here we have this challenge that here's a, an ancient city, an ancient culture 
which really sexual morals weren't really in play. Um, and now the church is trying to find its way in its new life when it's surrounded by this decayed, degenerate society. Do you think perhaps we're just a little bit dissimilar today? You know, do you think we live in a world that's bombarded by sexuality, sexual messages, who people think they are? It's a big issue. Um, and so it's interesting to see how Corinth then relates to this. Next slide, thank you. Actually, back one year, this is one of the shots that Steve took on his own camera. And if you would have looked at one of these temples, now this is about 2,000 years old. It was pretty specky. You know, it was very fancy. It was six-star. I mean, it's carved marble and reliefs and all sorts of things. It would have been coloured, would have had all sorts of paintings over it that have been washed off and lot. So it was a big deal. Next slide, thank you. Uh, Sin City. How do you be the light of Jesus in a darkened culture? How do you be pure in a muddy world is one of the challenges facing the church at Corinth. It's great to see uh, Brother Colin Shaw there well and healthy back from uh, his operation. Fantastic. So we're going to try and address that in about 10 minutes with each other today. So that's easy, isn't it? We'll solve all those problems with this. Right, next slide, thank you. And the particular chapter 5 actually does talk about church discipline. And that's something that the modern church doesn't do well. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, they weren't doing it well then, but probably for slightly different reasons. Next slide. Unacceptable truth. Okay. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 says this. Verse 1. I can hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going on among you. Something that even the pagans don't do. I am told a man in your church is living in sin with his stepmother. Everybody go, ooh. And you are proud of yourselves. You should be in mourning and in sorrow and shame, and you should remove this man from your fellowship. This sounds pretty tough, doesn't it? Even though I'm not there with you right now, I am with you in spirit. And just think that I am there, and I've already passed judgment on this man in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's Paul using his apostolic authority. You must call a meeting of the church, and when you do that, I'm going to be present with you in spirit, and so will be the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then you must throw this man out and hand him over to Satan. Say Satan. That sounds pretty dark. That sounds bad, doesn't it? Hand him over to Satan so that his sinful nature will be destroyed and he himself will be saved on the day of the Lord returns. And the truth is we could spend an hour just on that passage. Your boasting about this is terrible. Don't you realize that this sin is like a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough? And one of our great challenges today is that most of us don't make bread anymore. Or maybe some of you ladies do. We had a bread maker for a while, and it was wonderful. And you get this wonderful smell going on, but then all of a sudden, suddenly, clunk, 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 But to make bread, to rise, what do you need? Yeast. So a little bit of yeast, and what it does, it spreads through the whole dough. It just spreads. Can't stop it from spreading. 
So, um, so then he goes on to say, uh, don't you realize that a little yeast spreads through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast by removing this wicked person from among you. Then you'll be like a fresh batch of dough made without yeast. Just give your neighbor a bit of a smell. <laughs> Does it smell like a cupcake? Wonderful. So let us celebrate the festival, not with old bread of wickedness and evil, but of the new bread of sincerity and truth. When I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. But I was always talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin or who are greedy or who cheat or are people that worship idols. You would have to leave this world to avoid people like that. Everybody says amen to that. This is internal business. I'm not talking about not having friends that are involved in this sort of behavior. In fact, we should have friends. If we're real believers, we should have friends whose lives don't match up. But when you're inside, then there's meant to be a slightly different standard. And I meant for you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer yet indulges in sexual sin, but is greedy, worships idol or abusive or is a drunkard or cheats or thief. Don't eat with such people. It is not my responsibility to judge outsiders. Oh, some of us need to hear that. You know, sometimes the disposition of the church towards people in the world is that we judge them and we judge them. And we judge them. The Bible says don't do that. It's not our problem. It's God's problem. God will judge them. It's not our job. The uh, evangelical church is known for being judgmental, hypocritical, and homophobic. That's not what Jesus wants us to be known for. He wants us to be known for our unity and our love one for another. That's what he wants us to be known of. We should be agents of forgiveness. If they're ever going to find out that there's a way forward for them, they need to meet a Christian who's going to present grace and forgiveness, not judgmentalism and hypocrisy. Can someone say amen? So that isn't my responsibility, but it is my responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those outside, but as the Scriptures say, you must remove the evil person from among you. Okay, let's get through this pretty quickly. In 1984, Marion Gwynn was disciplined by her Baptist church for having an affair. She then sued the church for $390,000 for uh, defamation of character. And who thinks she won the case? Who thinks she lost the case? Who's not going to put up their hand? She won the case. She won the case because the world thinks, who are you to make any moral judgment about what happens when people's private rooms? Society considers such actions as narrow and bigoted, but what does the Bible say? Well, we've looked a little bit at the situation in 1 Corinthians. We've got a man cohabiting with his mother, probably his stepmother. This is strictly forbidden in the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 18. It's forbidden by Roman law. And then we have this next thing where, um, I mean, you've got to imagine someone coming to church who's uh, got his mum on his shoulder and you, everybody knows that they're sleeping with each other and they come down and sit on the front row and take out their Bible. That's the setting. And the reaction of the church to this is, that's okay, it's all right. They're actually proud about it. Verse 2 says that they actually are in pride about this. 
Now, it's not clear to me how you can be proud about that. So the two theories are from the commentators is that there was an early form of error creeping into the church that's now known as Gnosticism where it says that what happens in the body is unimportant. The body dies, stays here, and what gets saved is your spirit. So if you keep your spirit right before God, what you do in the body doesn't matter. That's one of the theories. So it doesn't really matter what you do in the body as long as you love Jesus. I think there's a bit of Gnosticism around the church these days. You know, these days there are people who actually don't seem to have any problem coming to church on Sundays and worshipping God and yet sleeping well. And there's a term which I've never used in church now, but it's actually a phenomenon within the Christian world where there seems to be no problems with men and women hooking up just for church because they love each other and they both love Jesus and whatever. I find that an interesting dilemma for me personally. I think the Bible says it. However, what I actually think is going on here is not the Gnostic thing. What I actually think is going on here is a slightly better, a slightly more different thing, which is a case of, oh, look, we know that's happening, but we're better than them out there. That's what I think this is about. They've got spiritual pride. Oh, yes, this is bad. It's happening in the church, but out there it's a whole lot worse. You know, we're not doing it as bad as them out there. And, of course, that's just something, again, that we shouldn't be allowing to creep in as leaven in the life of the church. Now, as your pastor, I would love to preach sometimes on the exciting things, you know, wonderful things, you know, the great things about how to, you know, come to Jesus and be blessed forever. And, you know, your life's going to be healthy, wealthy and wonderful. Nothing ever bad's going to happen and not to challenge you too much on sin and stuff, but I'm stuck because it's in the Bible. It's a whole chapter in the Bible. So I know this is not a feel-good sermon. I'm trying to do it in a way it doesn't come across as condemnation, but I am attempting to say to you, this is the Bible. This is the revealed truth of God, and we've got to deal with this if we're going to be people of the book. So here we go. Um, now, what Paul's analysis is before Christ, in fact, in the old days, we used to mark our calendars with B.C. and A.D., which changed a little bit. Now we tend to say B.C.E. and sort of change. But B.C. means before Christ. So it's, nine, it's 2012 today, isn't it? Which means it's 2012 since the time that Jesus was born. Well, there was a B.C. date and there's an A.D. date, Anno Domino in the year of our Lord. Friends, when you come to Jesus... There should be before Christ's behavior. And then once you come to saving faith, you invite Jesus to come and live your There should be a change in your life and there should be anodomy after Christ's behavior. That's not perfection. It doesn't mean that we've made or... But there should be a change. There should be a conversion. There should be regeneration. And without that, I would worry for my soul. I'd worry for your soul. Now, he goes on to say in 1 Corinthians, the next, chapter, the next verse, that you know some of you were homosexuals, some of you were effeminate, some of you were greedy, some of you were idolaters, some of you were all this. But that's what you were. Thank God for change. Wonderful, glorious gospel change. That's what we were. 
Essentially, the gospel is saying, I was this, Jesus did this, and now I'm that. There should be a change. And so he's saying to the Corinthian church, hey, don't do this, leave it stuff, leave it alone, but we should be grieving it. Sin should challenge us. And oh, dear Holy Spirit, you know, I want to put me right in this. How much does sin actually bother Mike? You know, we've gotten so used to it. We are like the Corinthians because it's so much around us that it doesn't bother you. I, I can remember many years ago going to a movie and there was a part in the movie where I said, I can't handle this anymore. And I got up and I walked out. I probably wouldn't do it today. There were TV shows probably five years ago that I'd turn off immediately. Now, I want to tell you, there's still lots of others I am turning off. There's lots of others I'm still not. But, but I'm just saying we are so captured by this that, you know, there was a time when I would have been mortally offended and I would have changed my position. I would have walked out then and there. And right now it's creeping in. We are all like a fish in water. How do we actually live when this water, this culture around us, permeates us so much? Well, one of the things that Paul suggests here is that Christ is our Passover. Very quick Old Testament Bible lesson very quickly. Jesus is our Passover. So if you're an ancient Jew... Once a year, you would have to go to the temple. You would take a lamb. You would take this lamb up to the high priest. It was that spot without blemish. And you would place your hand on that little lamb and you would pass your sins from you onto that lamb. That lamb would be taken. Its throat would be cut. It would die there in front of you. Its blood would be collected and that blood would then be offered to Jehovah. The lamb's life in exchange for your life. Your, you knew then that your sin killed that little animal. It was very graphic. You know, thank God we live in this covenant, not in the old covenant. And then one day Jesus came along and he said, I am your Passover. He went to the cross and he poured forth his blood. Now we say there's a feast of unleavened bread. So in the tablet, when you, the Feast of Passover would go for seven days. In the middle of the Feast of Passover, they would then have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And what would happen is you would have to go through your house, often with a candle around about dusk, and you'd look for all the yeast in the house. It was done as a bit of a fun thing for the kids too, a little bit similar to the way we might do an Easter egg, egg hunt. You know, go find the bread kids, and they'd all go through the cupboards and try and find stuff and... You know, it'd be nice for them to find it. And they'd remove all the old yeast out of the house. And they would take it out, and then they would have a yeast-free feast. Because the thing about yeast is it spreads. It spreads. A little bit will permeate the whole lump. A little bit of sin can actually spread so easily in the life of, an all, of a body. And this is what the Paul was. And so what Paul's saying is this is, Christ is your Passover. If you've accepted Jesus as the one now who has taken away your sins, your next obligation is to pursue holiness. Your next obligation is to pursue holiness. And what you would do is you would go and you would search your house 
for yeast. Yeast is a symbol of? Yeast is a symbol of? Yeast is a symbol of? Your obligation then is to search your house for and then you would remove the sin from your house as a response to what Jesus has done in your life. He has rescued me, he has saved me, he has set me free. So then what I need to do then is to show my commitment and my obligation to that by removing sin from my house. And you just search it out. And I want to tell you, the way the Holy Spirit works with me is that you generally he will lead me to something. And I'll go to a little corner and I'll say, oh, dear, I didn't know that was there. Well, actually, I'll be really honest. I did know it was there. I go over there and I see it. And God then wants me to remove it. He'll help me. He'll give me the strength. He'll give me the power to remove that out of my life. But there might be more yeast in the house. You don't see it yet. And what the Holy Spirit does is it leads you on this journey of holiness, this pathway where we become more like Jesus. He'll start to remove those things out of our life. So that's, a, that's what God wants us to do. It's our commitment to holiness. One is to search their house for any yeast and to have it removed because sin will spread. My best favorite story for the danger of a little sin, how it can grow into a big sin, is the boy, the 14-year-old boy in America who was eaten by his pet snake. A boa constrictor. And apparently when they brought Roger home from the pet shop, he was only a little snake. He was a cute little snake. I mean, I don't think snakes are very cute, but I'm told they're very cute. Anybody who likes a snake as a pet here? A couple like, I'm told they're not clammy, they're very nice, got lots of personality. I don't know how you do that. But he brought home Roger from the pet shop as a little snake. You know what happened? He grew up. And one day he was a really big snake. What happens? You don't notice. You don't notice that the sin grows. You don't notice it gets bigger. It starts off as a little monster and becomes a bigger monster and a bigger monster. So uh, sin is a serious matter. (laughs) I'd love to preach on something really happy and really nice today, but I want to tell you, even Christians, their lives can be destroyed if we don't deal with the yeast in our life. Paul says that we need to care front those that are caught in sin. Not to, and then he actually then has to correct the Corinthians later because they were far too strong. They kicked this man out of the house. They disfellowship him. They discipline him. He then repents, but they won't let him back. <laughs> so he's got to say, to, oh, you guys, you went too far. You know, you did nothing, and then you went to the other extreme. So all church discipline is focused on restoration, not on condemnation, but on restoration. If you can hear my heart today, I'm not wanting to condemn anybody, but I'm wanting to restore people to see you come free from the things that can hurt you. So Paul is saying, don't, you know, you need to grieve over your sin. And the thing that we need to grieve over most is our own sin. Too many people, I think, grieve over other people's sin. You know, the moment, the moment you say, look at the hypocrite, guess who the hypocrite is? 
<laughs> the moment you do that, you're in trouble, aren't you? I think we need to start with us, get us right, and then we can start to, after we remove the plank from our own eyes, then we can more adequately take out Matthew chapter 7, the splintering someone else's. But the way we tend to do it, we see everybody else's faults, don't we? We're really good at that. Uh, you know, 1 Corinthians 5.11 says this, Now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone who's named a brother who is sexually immoral. Most of us would say there, Amen. But you know what? Says covetous, an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, an extortioner. And this is why I think we really need great great change because the problem with Corinth is they couldn't see their own problems. They couldn't deal with their own issues. They might have, they might have had other things happening there that they could have dealt with. But because sexual immorality was so rampant, they couldn't actually address this issue. One of the acceptable sins that we don't deal with today in the church of Jesus Christ. I'll give you one. Pride. Covetousness. Um, criticism. There's a whole bunch of other. Is sexual morality bad? Can that wreck your life? What about criticism? Can that wreck your life? <laughs> what about some of these other things as well? Uh, maybe they are just as dangerous. You know, sexually immoral comes from the word pornea, where we get the word pornography from. Oh, dear Jesus, help all the men, please. Jesus, such a problem today with men and women becoming more and more involved with an addiction to pornography. Covetous, a person wanting more than others. Is anyone here today just wanting a little bit more? Desiring what other people have? Oh, I'd love to have what they have. An idolater, valuing the created order rather than the creator. Maybe one of the reasons where the earth is almost bankrupt is that the biggest sin in the world is that we just want stuff. We don't want to share. Don't want to feed the poor. A reviler, someone who's constantly pulling other people down, gossiping and criticizing. Oh, some of these things sit right alongside some of those other biggies that we'd address. Pastor, you need to throw that person out of the church because they're immoral. Yeah, there's some other things that we need to deal with as well if we start getting to that list. Drunkard, someone who's dependent upon substances to make them feel okay. An extortionist, someone who uses stealth, lies, manipulation to get people to comply with their desires. Dear God, we need accountability. We need people to help us. So how do you then land something like this? Paul's very concerned about the Corinthians. Disunity is a problem. Just go to the next slide, thanks. Disunity is a problem. He said, well, at the end of the day, let's actually forget about personalities. Let's just look at Jesus. What an incredible skill that is. If you look at the church of Jesus Christ, it will always fail you. The more you look at the church as an organization, the more you will find fault and failure and humanness and frailty. God's working on the church as best he can, but the church will never keep your attitude right. We must somehow see the head of the church, Jesus. When we see Jesus as the head of the church, then we can serve God with all of our heart. 
But then he says that we need to then uh, get a revelation about that there are some things in the midst of our church that needs to be dealt with. The biggest problem in the modern church is that any discipline done locally in a church usually results in that individual just leaving that church and going to another church. Very difficult, isn't it? It's a little bit like me trying to discipline Kristen. Kristen, I need you to clean up the computer room. Please help me. And Kristen says, no, I'm not going to do that. Well, yes, you are. I'm your father. I brought you in this world. I'll take you out. has his friend AJ with me here today and just want to say AJ I'm very proud of you I'm very proud of you um, but you know no no your mother's told me I'm acting on orders I'm under man under authority <laughs> you're to clean up the computer room today it's what's going to happen says well I'm not going to do that I'm going to go and join the Bugsies you know I'm going to move in with them you know well you know or move in with the bolts you know how can you bring discipline if at the moment that, that sorry, <laughs> your fault. <laughs> Go live with John I'm told that can be interesting, and Caleb and stuff. Yeah. It's a real challenge. And, and this is something that I, I hope one day we might actually get to a place where we uh, are enough of a family that we can actually do this sort of stuff that if something really was to go down, that we could actually walk it out with firmness, but love, restoration, and bring people back into family. That's what God would like the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day to do. You know, I, I, would, I would love us to have, say, someone come into our church who's perhaps, perhaps in a homosexual relationship and obviously stuff with his partner. I'd love him to come and to be loved, not condemned, not judged, and brought into fellowship and then bring them to a place where there's wholeness and there's change and they get born again and saved. And then if they fell back into bad behavior, not to be judged, but to be loved and worked with and to be brought forward. I don't know about you, but I'm just a broken man who God has shown unreasonable merit and favor on, and he's bringing me forward to change and to grow. May the church, capital C in our nation, stand up to be strong. It would be so wonderful if someone was to perhaps fail in another church, come here, and for us to identify very early, we think we ought to go back and face that door. Or vice versa, where, you know, uh, in fact, I know one church, if you go there and if their, if their executive pastor sees you, you go into their welcome land and says, oh, I come from XYZ Church. His first comment says, well, I think you ought to go there. That's where you ought to go. Uh, Rick Godwin, I'll stop. Stop. Rick Godwin does this. You know Rick Godwin? He's one of those evangelists, and most evangelists have an anointing in, in insulting people. He says, oh, who's here, who's here today? Church is new. Put your hand up. Don't put your hand up. He says, who's here new today? Okay, now, did you come to check out the girls? Did you come to check out the boys? 
Are you living in immorality and so you're running from your other church so you can come and sit in the back seat here? No one knows what's going on. Is that you today, you know? Uh, are you the guy who's just wanting to come and sell Amway? You burned out your last network and you're here to do that, you know? Or do you think that you're the next apostle for Australia and you've come to correct this church and to get it past the lineup? I mean, what are you here for? That's overstating it sometimes, <laughs> just a little bit. But we are here not to be judgmental and to try and put an artificial standard of holiness that none of us can, none of us can live to. But we also do need to know sin does need to be dealt with. And if you've got a little snake at home, can I really ask you, Holy Spirit says, please kill it. Don't let it grow. One of the things that we see a lot in church life now is people that are not married, just coming to church, wanting to be a part of everything like that. Well, it's, it's a challenge. Often the first time we find that out is when it comes to water baptism. If they come into the life of the church, there's a mum, there's a dad, there's kids around you don't ask anything about things and you sit down and say, oh, you want to go to the waters of baptism? Yeah, 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 yeah. Then next minute you get a phone call, maybe you better marry us first. <laughs> it happens. I don't know where you guys are, but Paul says that it's so important because we are light to a dark world. If we can't master this, how can they ever do it? And Jesus says, look, I know that you fear me, I know that you've got appetite. I know that you will struggle. But that's why I died for you. And that's why I rose from the dead. And that's why I shed my Holy Spirit upon you. That you would have power to live in victory. Hallelujah. Isn't that wonderful? None of us need be failures. God will help us if we'll let him. So we're going to have the uh, band up and we're just going to pray. Just go and leave it there. Father, we do ask that you would uh, talk to each one of us as individuals. Lord, at a time like this, it's so easy to look to the left and to the right and to be thinking of other people, Lord, in our lives who ought to get their life right. Father, we pray that you'd look at our hearts. Lord, you're looking into our hearts today. Lord, we don't do this to condemn anybody. Lord, you are doing this. You're turning the light of revelation on, Lord, that we can shine that we can invite you into this space, Lord. Lord, it might be a secret place. It might be a place of great hardship. It might be a place, Lord, where we have struggled. And, Lord, we've not lived in victory. But, Lord, this morning, we're going to say yes. We're going to observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We're going to take the yeast out. Take it out of our house. Lord, that might be turning the internet off in our home. It might be changing our friends. It might be doing things. But, Lord, today we pray, Holy Spirit, Lord, let it not be my choice. Let it be your spirit saying, change has to happen. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Alexander the Great.